Thank you so much for tuning in to Encounter AZ's podcast. We are believing that God is going to use this ministry to change your life. Now enjoy the message. I want to preach, continue my series, Earth to Heaven. And I want to preach a message to you this morning uh, called Praying on Purpose. Praying on Purpose. And, and if you're a note taker, I would suggest that this is definitely a message that you may want to take notes for. Because there's going to be some things that, um, I'm going to give you a pattern for prayer this morning. A way to pray on purpose, and it's a biblical pattern, I believe, and we also love to take notes at this church because we believe that uh, you're 96 more likely to get to heaven if you take notes, okay? So that's a lie. I'm kidding. But we believe that note takers are world changers, and so we, we'd, I'd encourage you this morning, if you ever take notes, to do that this morning. There's a, there's a card in the seat in front of you uh, if you need something to write on. I, I read the story about this teacher. She asked a little boy, Johnny, tell me, do you say prayers before you eat? And Johnny replied, my mom's a good cook. I don't have to. And, so, and I thought that was funny, but I think that's how we approach prayer a lot of times. Like, I don't need to pray unless something is wrong. And sometimes, as Christians, we approach prayer as a last resort when I think prayer is meant to be our first response. And I don't want to be a church where prayer is our last resort. I want to be a, a church that prays first. Because, because I think we can often become so familiar with prayer that we miss out on the power that's in it. You can do this with a lot of things. Andrew, will you bring me that bowl of weird things underneath you? There's a lot of things we get so familiar with in life, we may be missing out on actually part of the power and the purpose of it. So I brought a few things. You're going to learn something this morning, okay? How many of you have seen these before? These are pretty cool, right? I'm going to teach you something. You're missing out on something about these. You don't even know it. I'm going to teach you. Watch this. That this is meant to be a plate, so you don't got to get your dishes dirty if you have takeout at your house. And then when you're done eating, you can fold it back up and put it right back in your fridge. Come on, somebody. You learned something in church this morning. You've been missing out on the purpose of these beautiful little things. How about this? I have a question for you guys about this. How many of you drink soda? Anybody? All the unhealthy people. Raise your hands. Okay. How many of you have ever tried to do a straw in your soda can? You ever do that? And you end up doing one of these, you're like... Chasing your straw around. I don't know if you know this, but this cap, this, this thing on the top is meant you could spin it around and they designed this to actually hold your straw in place in your soda. Did you know that? I bet you didn't know that. Who drinks these? These are not for me. Anybody want this? Okay. Thanks, buddy. Take one for the team. I opened it. I can't turn back now. All right. Another thing. You probably have these around your house, these wooden spoons, and you probably thought, the only purpose of these was to beat your butt when you were a kid, but they're actually made for purposes. Did you, know, did you know, first of all, that your cookware at home was actually made? How many of you cook something, you stir it, and then you're like, what do I, I don't want to set this down. It gets my counter dirty. Did you know that your cookware is actually made to hold them already? Did you know that? Come on, somebody. Somebody's getting saved right now, I'm telling you. Not only that, there's more. If you order today, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, there's, but there is more. Why are these made out of wood? Did you ever ask yourself that? Did you know that wood is an amazing conductor of heat? So that you can actually set this on top of your pot like that, and when it bubbles over, you ever make your mac and cheese and the bubbles start to come up over? And this will actually pop the bubble so it won't overflow onto your stove. Wood will do that. cancels out the heat. Is that something else or what? 
One more thing. I bet you didn't know this. This blew my mind, okay? This is a cup. Have you seen these lids? You know, you pop in like, oh, I had diet or I had regular, whatever. They pop them down. But did you know that these lids are actually made in the perfect size to be a coaster? In fact, I know. All right, we're going to do an altar call for Casey right now. He's, he's having life change. But if anything spills over, it actually falls down, and there's a little lip around the outside to catch all your excess so nothing will spill out. Come on. Have you been wasting your life away? I mean, not knowing these things? You're so familiar with these things that we neglect to use them in the correct way. Don't even see things about them. You've been doing the same thing probably with some of your prayer life. We neglect it. We, we think it's so casual. Oh, yeah, we go to church. They're going to talk to us about reading our Bible. They're going to talk to us about prayer. It's what they do. But can I tell you something? Don't overlook prayer. Don't sleep on prayer. Prayer is something, and it means something, and it can do. There's power in prayer, and we need to use it. We need to be a church who understands the power in prayer. I'm often uh, asked by people, well, I, especially new believers, I just don't know how to pray. How should I pray? You know, and we can use that as an excuse. And so I want to I look at some things this morning and kind of teach you a model or a pattern for prayer. And I want to start by reading Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9. This should be on the screen. And it says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. This is what God told Moses in the Old Testament. He wanted to make a place for his presence to dwell. So he says, I'm going to show you this pattern. I'm going to give you specific plans on how to build it. In fact, it's built and modeled after the tabernacle, the the temple in heaven. And he says, I'm going to show you these heavenly things, and I want you to model it on earth. And this was a place in the Old Testament where the Israelites could approach God and come to worship God. His presence dwelt in the tabernacle. And so in the same way, prayer today is our opportunity to approach God. As they did in the Old Testament when they went to the temple, I think there's some things we can learn about the tabernacle that can teach us something about approaching God in our lives today. And so there's seven elements in the tabernacle I want to talk to you about this morning. You can throw that picture up there. There's a picture, and you're not going to be able to read it. I know. I I could have found a better one, but I'm going to explain it to you. You see how there's different items in the tabernacle. I want to explain to you first the very top and bottom and left and right of the picture. There's this big outer courtyard. And this is outside. There's no roof over that. But this is what they call the outer courtyard. And there's a gate all the way to the right that's kind of cut off uh, by our image there. But that's where the people would enter in through the gate. And then on the very right, right there, you see an altar of burnt offerings. And then you see the laver. And then you go inside. There's a building. And inside is called the holy place. And in there you have the golden candlestick, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. And then you have a veil that only the high priest could pass through one time a year to enter into the presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies, okay? So this is something that God modeled after this tabernacle in heaven, and um, he's serious about it. You see all this furniture? God is serious about furniture, okay? Can I get an amen from some ladies? Um, Joanna Gaines has nothing on God. God is a serious decorator, okay? He, he, did, he did something special when he made the tabernacle, and, and I've learned there's a difference between men and women in how they approach furniture. There's something special to women about furniture. If you don't believe me, go to, a, go to a house of a couple that you know and start asking questions about their furniture. The wife will tell you, oh, 
that cabinet, that ca- I actually got that cabinet 12 years ago. We were going through a really hard time. Actually, that cabinet helped me through a really hard time in my life. It all started when I was 13, you see, when I was, and you're like, okay, I get it. This is, this is sentimental to you. Your grandmother, man, I get it. But you ask the husband, you ask the man, what, what, tell me about this piece. He's going to look at you like you're a psycho. Like, what are you talking about this piece? What do you mean? My wife likes it. I don't know. It's where we keep our china that we never use. What do you want to know about it? But women understand something, there's something special behind their furniture, and God is the same way. He has a purpose for each piece of furniture that he put in the tabernacle, and we can learn some things from it. So I want to look closer at the purposes and the meaning of each piece, and I think we're going to learn something about intimacy with God. Why is this so important? Is because Jesus no longer came so that we don't have to go to a tabernacle and worship. He took the temple of God that we see in this picture and he transferred it from a place to a person. And the moment that we see this in scripture is Jesus, he's actually at the temple and he looks up at it and there's all these people around and these religious leaders and he says, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And they look at him like, are you crazy? It took our fathers this many years to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? But what Jesus was doing was he was prophesying about his death and resurrection. Because he was saying the temple in the presence of God no longer dwells in a place, it dwells in a person. And he said, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And so I think we need to learn something about um, what Jesus is trying to tell us. That this tabernacle no longer holds the presence of God. This is a model of what's in heaven. This tabernacle no longer holds the presence of God. The temple of God is in us where the Holy Spirit dwells. And so I can learn something about getting intimate with God because the, this place that we see on this picture is now in me. And so everything in this picture can teach me something about how to get intimate with God. And there's seven steps to prayer I want to talk about. If you're taking notes, the first one is the outer court. The outer court. The first thing you see when you walk in, you have to walk through this gate on the right, and you walk into the outer courtyard, and this is a place where people would begin to give God thanks. You come in, and you'd enter his gates with thanksgiving. You've heard that verse before. Um, The outer court is basically like a patio to the tabernacle. And you walked in outside of the, the wall, and you were inside that outer wall. So you've come out from outside, you've come in, you pass through the gates, and there was a watchman there who, in that day, there were other tabernacles. This was not the only tabernacle. This was God's tabernacle, but it was, it was custom. If you were to go into a tabernacle, the watchman would make sure that you were not an enemy of the person who, who owned that tabernacle. If you were an enemy of the person who owned that tabernacle, they would not let you in. And you know why that got me stirred up this week, realizing that? Is because when I go into God's presence with thanksgiving, the enemy can't follow me in. There's a watchman at the gate that says, you know how to get the enemy off your back? Go into God with thanksgiving and start to worship him. And all of a sudden, you go into a place that he can't get into. There's a watchman at the gate. I, I started thinking about um, when I used to to work in, in a construction, and we'd have to go in backyards sometimes. And I remember sometimes you go in, and the people, they forgot that you were coming or something, and they went to work, and they didn't put their dog inside. Have you ever seen a dog that, like, you know wants to eat you? And there were some dogs, you know, we'd be like, okay, it's fine, and you talk nice to it, and they'll come over, and it's a nice dog. Other times, I would say, nope, not doing it. This dog wants to take my life. I can tell. And, and I think this, the Holy Spirit does the same thing. When I enter into God's presence with thanksgiving, all of a sudden, the enemy wants to come in with me. He can't go where God's presence dwells. And I start to give thanksgiving, and there's a Holy Spirit at the gate to say, you cannot come in. That's why I think there's something special about prayer and worship. I come to the gate. 
I come into God's presence. I enter because I have a relationship with Jesus. I can come right in. I'm not an enemy of God. I'm in relationship with Jesus. Uh, Psalm 104 is that verse that says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. That's why I think it's important. We start off prayer every morning by giving thanks. I have nothing to be thankful for, Pastor Brent. My question for you if you're saying that, is do you have breath in your lungs this morning? Do you have mobility this morning? Did you get to church this morning? Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? If you do, then you have reason to say, thank you, Jesus. I got something to be thankful for. I might not have everything I want, but at least I have something to be thankful for. God is attracted to thankful people. How do I know? Because you're attracted to thankful people. You ever walk into a place and you hold the door for someone coming behind you and they walk right in, don't even make eye contact, don't even say thank you? Like, does that anger anybody? I know some of you, you want to grab them by the shirt, pull them back out, close the door, and walk away. That's what you want to do. Jess wants to do that. That's who I'm talking to. I knew I was talking to somebody this morning. But I think there's something about thankfulness that builds up expectation in your life. And, and I started thinking this week, and I think there's an epidemic that battles thankfulness, and I think that thankfulness is part of the cure, and there's this, there's this epidemic in our culture now, and it affects everyone. It affects different types of people, um, and it, what it does is it'll rob you from seeing God's blessing. It will keep you in bed all day. It will keep you up all night. It will help keep you from experiencing God's best. It will make you miserable. It caused people to turn to addiction, and the the epidemic I'm talking about is emptiness. No one is free from going through seasons where they feel empty. And this epidemic can affect you anywhere. You can be in poverty and be empty. You can be rich and be empty. You can live on the west coast and be empty. You can live on the east coast and be empty. You can live with notoriety and be empty, or you can be ambiguous and be empty. It doesn't, it doesn't discriminate. It can only be addressed by one anecdote. Money won't fix it. Power won't fix it. A new career won't fix it. A ring on your finger won't fix it. A new spouse will not fix it. The only antidote is God. He's the only one who can scratch that itch. He's the only one who can help you, make you feel fulfilled. And we all want to feel fulfilled. But we all struggle with seasons where we have to say, God, there's something that I need, and I need to know to turn to God for that thing, because we all need fulfillment. And many people are looking for fulfillment in things, and they don't realize what they're doing because they're not searching for what they think they're searching for. I've seen so many people striving for a new job or a another degree to get another career because they think that that thing will give them fulfillment, but fulfillment is not in that thing. They're striving for fulfillment, and so they think it's in that thing, and they're not, and they're not going to find fulfillment in those things. Have, have you ever done this and picked up a can of soda thinking it's full, but it's empty, and, you're, and you do one of those, and you jerk it up? Am I the only one who's ever done that? Maybe I'm just stronger than I can. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, you know what my kids will do? They'll, they like to drink these Capri Suns, and they think they're tricky. They drink it real fast, and they blow it back up. And they're like, hey, Dad, you want a drink? And I'm like, get out of here. Smack it out of their hand. Because I know that thing is empty. 
And I'm telling you, some people strive so hard to look full and to appear a certain way in church, but when you get down to it and you get your hands on their life, they are empty. And there's some of you this morning, you've been empty and you've been looking in fulfillment in different things, and I want to tell you this morning, you can, you can find those things and still be empty. You remember the story where Jacob worked for seven years to marry Rachel? Then he woke up the next morning and found out it was Leah, the weak-eyed one. That's biblical for ratchet. I don't know if you knew that. Like, that's the common name for ratchet. But it's okay. Don't get offended. Ugliness was abolished at the cross. It's no longer a thing. So you're not ratchet. Um, But... Can you imagine? And I think people do that in our culture today. They're striving and thinking. They're working for something. And they come to this accomplishment that they think will fulfill them. And they realize that I sacrificed my whole life. I sacrificed my health. I gave years to that thing or that person. And they get to it and they get what they thought they wanted. And they say, I sacrificed all of that for this. And it doesn't deliver what they hoped it would deliver. God wants us to be fulfilled. And and you need to know, he doesn't want you to be fulfilled for self-gratifying reasons. He doesn't want you to be fulfilled so that you feel better about yourself or so that you can self-glorify and say, I'm full. That's not why God wants you to live a fulfilled life. He wants you to live a fulfilled life because a person who lives a fulfilled life lives a life that is not fragile. When I live a fulfilled life, my decisions are better. When I live a fulfilled life, I, I can choose better when I have options. Contentment helps me to, to be less possible to, or less likely to fall into snares. It's important to live a life fulfilled. You can be wiser when you're fulfilled. You can, you can come to a place where you can realize there's no deficit that God can't meet because I'm fulfilled. And I don't need anything else. I don't have to settle for something that's not in my best interest. In fact, someone who's fulfilled gets really good at saying a certain word. And that word is, nah. And I think there's some Christians who have not mastered this because they live their life on empty, looking in the wrong places for fulfillment. But when you're fulfilled, you can look at that person, that temptation, and they say, hey, you want to go out with me? And you say, nah, I'm good. But come on, girl, you're fine. That's right. I'm fine without you. I got Jesus, okay? I don't need you. And we, we live from a place of fulfillment. We make better decisions because I'm not empty, because I know who I am and I know who God says I am. I'm not running on empty and I don't need anything else to help me. You can say, nah, that's not good for my mental, my emotional health. Nah, I'm not going to go. Nah, I don't want that. I don't, I'm not interested in that because I already have everything I need. You know, you can expect life to have no storms. And, and what happens is when we are fulfilled, we can live a life with storms. We can live a life with the wind hitting against us, but to expect life without storms is naive. To expect that you're going to live a life and never have any wind hit your life, it's just silly. You know why Jesus even told us in John chapter 16, verse 33, he said, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you, have tr- you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You know what that means? That means live long enough and wind is going to hit your life. Live long enough and something is going to happen. And the only way to get through these things is to learn to be thankful when the windstorms come. 
Even when I'm going through something and I don't have everything I need, I'm still thankful and I can, I can still understand. I'm not fragile because God has everything that I need. I can advance in the middle of the wind. Those that win in life have built up wind resistance. Because even someone who's not strong, even someone who's fragile can survive and do okay in life without wind. But sooner or later, the wind separates the people that are fragile and the people that are fulfilled in Jesus. And I think thankfulness is a key to this. And, I, and I'm hitting this a lot harder than some of my other points because I think it's important that we understand we need to start at thankfulness. If you can't get that right, you're going to live a life with no gratitude and you're going to feel sorry and throw pity parties for yourself all the time. But we need to come to a place where we can say, God, first thing first, I thank you that I have what I have. I know I don't have everything that I feel like I want or need right now, but I'm content in what you've given me. That's the first thing. They come to the outer courts and they give thanks. The second thing, they come in and they give and they come to the altar of burnt offerings, the brazen altar, some call it. And this is this is where they would bring offerings and sacrifice them in the Old Testament. Before Jesus came, they would sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of their sins. And this is where they'd bring them and they'd lay these sacrifices down. And now what this relates to us is now this is a place we come to and we focus on the cross. We focus on the sacrifice of Jesus. I came in giving thanks, but now I'm taking my uh, focus and my attention, I'm putting it on the cross. I'm focusing on forgiveness. I'm not focusing on my sin, my shame, my guilt. I understand that this was all broken at the cross. The grave and death were broken at the cross. I don't need to give it my attention. I'm not meant to carry guilt or shame. The Bible does not authorize me to carry those things. You know, the only thing the Bible authorizes Christians to carry is your cross. That's why when I come to this place, I put my attention on the cross. I don't put my attention on my mistakes. I'm not authorized to carry stress or anxiety or worry. I put on the cross, I take up my cross daily, and I put my attention on it, and I focus myself on the victory of Jesus Christ. Because the enemy wants us to, to come in. We don't give thanks for anything. We're throwing a pity party, and now I come to this place where I just feel guilt and shame when I approach God. But that's not the picture we see in the tabernacle, and that's not the picture we see with Jesus. When sinners would come and throw their feet, or throw themselves at Jesus' feet, he would, he would love them and say, go and sin no more. He didn't point to their sin in specific what they did. He, he loved them because they came humbly. And can I tell you, you need to approach God with humility and say, I focus on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. I don't have to carry shame or guilt. I lay it at the cross. Have you noticed something? So far, none of this that we've done has put the focus on you and your sins and your mistakes. It's all been a focus on Jesus. It's all been a focus on what God has done. I want you to ask this question of yourself this morning. How much of my prayer life is about me? How much time do you spend praying um, about yourself? I think a lot of us, we, 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 get, we get this off. And that's why I think this is, uh, this is important to have this, this focus in this pattern this morning. The third thing that you come to is the labor. This was, a, this was a, a place where you would come and cleanse your body. They'd come and they'd cleanse their hands and their feet. And, and this is a place where I think now that the, the temple is in, our, in, in us as the Holy Spirit lives in us and we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, I think this is a place we come to in our prayer and we offer every part of our life to God. We offer every part of it. We say, Lord, I give you my hands. Would you use them? 
Lord, I give you my feet, would you lead them? Lord, I give you my eyes, would you let them see like you see? God, I give you my mouth, let everything that comes out of it be from you. Lord, I give you every part of me, my ears, to help me hear what you're saying. Lord, I give you my mind, that my mind will not be a playground for the enemy, but every thought will be obedient to Christ in Jesus' name. God, I give you every part of my life. This is a place of cleansing and surrender. Here's a secret for you young people. Give your body to God and you don't have to worry about giving it to anybody else. Say, God, I surrender every part of my life. I give you my body. Are you in pain this morning? I want to encourage you to give your body to God because that pain is in violation of God's promise over your body. God, I give you my pain this morning. I give you every part of me. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, Paul says this. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You know, the enemy will throw things at your mind. But when I enter into God's presence, he can no longer get to me. In the presence of Jesus, I am absence from the presence of the enemy. Some of you who have been tormented over and over and you feel this battle, I want to encourage you, get in the presence of Jesus. David says, I run to him and his courts and I am safe. You are God's instrument to bring change and that's why you're such a, you're such a, a worry for the enemy. He's scared of what you are. You know why? Because your worship brings God's attention to earth. Earth to heaven. Can you hear me? Your worship brings God's attention to earth. In fact, we read in the scripture about the enemy and it says he's, he's, he used to be an instrument of worship for God. Let's read Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 11 through 13. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, And this is referring to Lucifer. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sargis, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Then Isaiah 14, 11, I want to tie these together. It's also referring to Lucifer. It says, your pomp is brought down to Sheol. Sheol is, is a version of hell that we see in the whole te- Old Testament. It's, that's what it's referring to. And the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. You see, God replaced his function, though, in you. That's why he hates you. That's why there's such an attack on your prayer life and your worship. How many of you ever try and get some time alone with Jesus, but you neglect to turn off your phone? All of a sudden, everyone's got something they need to say to you. They're calling. They're texting. Every, every other distraction in the world is happening. You're, you're putting your baby down to sleep. You're like, I'm going to get some time with Jesus. All of a sudden, like the baby wakes up. out of, It's just everything. There is always a battle to get in the presence of God and have that time with him. And the enemy hates it because it's been taken away from him. A great example is, is when um, I get one of my kids, and my, one of my kids is in trouble and they lose out on a privilege and they have to sit there and watch their sibling get that privilege. You ever see that? And you know that other sibling is living it up. They're like, mm, this is so good. I bet you wish you had this. And I can tell in the punished sibling's eyes that they want to murder their sibling. You ever seen this look? Because you have to sit and watch this person get what you should have got. 
I do the same thing, though. If there's like one ice cream left in the freezer, I'll make my kids come and sit and watch me eat it and go, oh, this is so good. I'm kidding. Don't judge me. Um, but there's something about it, and that's why I love entering into the gates of God's presence and rubbing it in the enemy's face and saying, you know what? You can't come in here, and there's nothing you do, can do to stop me from receiving the peace and the joy of God, because when I'm in the presence of God, I'm out of the presence of the enemy, and you can't stop my worship I love it. I love seeing the scripture and seeing how it ties into our lives and and what God's done. You see, we read those scriptures about Lucifer, and it says that he had three things. It says in the scripture that he had timbrels, pipes, and strings. Timbrels, they're they're percussion. And he had this percussion. Uh, It says that he had pipes, which is like a wind instrument, and he had strings. See, his being was an instrument to God. But when God made man... He, he made us with timbrels or percussion, or we can clap to God and worship. He made us with um, pipes or sound. He made wind and lungs that we can sing and we can give wind back to God. And he made us with strings of our vocal cords to lift up worship to God. So it must anger the enemy to see me lift up my voice and worship with my strings and with my wind and with my percussion and say, you know what, God, I give you all the praise because the enemy sees what he used to have and now he's given it up and he sees the same elements that God put in him, but he replaced him with us. You better believe the enemy's scared of our worship. He knows the power that's in it. No other creature was created with these elements. Why do you think the enemy's always trying to stop your worship and your prayer? Why do you think circumstances in your life come and the enemy comes right into your mind and tries to turn you against God and say, how could God let this happen? How could this happen? I don't understand. Instead of saying, you know what? I'm not going to let the enemy get on my back and tear me down. My God is still in control. I'm going to enter his gates with thanksgiving and I'm going to start to worship and pray and spend time with God. It's It's a weapon that you can learn this morning. I feel like this can help some people. The fourth thing, once you enter into the holy place, on the left there, you would see the golden candlestick. The golden candlestick. And this represents inviting the work of the Holy Spirit into your life. And I think this is so important when we spend time with God. In the Old Testament, the prophets, they, they talked and they walked with God. In the New Testament, the disciples, they walk with Jesus. And now believers walk with the leading of the Holy Spirit. Those that are the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, let me explain to you, is a person, and the Bible says he leads you into all truth. What is truth? The Bible, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is a person, and it's the person of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will always point you to Jesus. First, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God, the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. You know why you lost the passion to prayer? You stopped fanning the flame. You know why you lost your passion to be in community and you've gone through seasons where you gave up on church? Because you stopped fanning the flame. You know why you lost the passion to get in God's word? Because you stopped fanning the flame. We all go through it and we have to come to a a series of situations and seasons in our life where you say, I am not going to stop fanning the flame. I'm going to stir it up for revival in my family and in my city. I'm not going to give up and I'm not going to grow to complacent because every day I have to go to the candlestick and invite the Holy Spirit to fan the flames of revival in my heart. If we don't do that, we're, we're going to grow complacent and be, and be a dead 
church and a dead and dead Christians with no power in our lives. But I say, God, we want revival in our lives. We want revival in our families, and we're going to run, and we're going to get everything that God promised for us. I'm going to fan the flame in my life. Can I get some more people to say, you know what? I'm not going to be complacent, and I'm going to fan the flame of God in my life. I'm not going to wait for circumstances to drive me to Jesus. I'm not going to pray as a last resort. I'm going to pray as a first response. We're going to be a church that says, you know what? We're going to go after Jesus first. I don't need persecution to go after Jesus. I don't need terrible circumstances. I don't need to be facing jail time to go after Jesus. I don't need to be in addiction to go after Jesus, to have a broken heart to go after Jesus. I'm choosing right now to go after Jesus now as as a first response. God, before anything happens, we want to go after you. The fifth thing in the temple, if you're taking notes, is the table of showbread. The table of showbread. You see it up on the, on the right when you walk into the holy place. The table of showbread. This represents the claiming God's promises in his word. This is where I claim God's promises in his word. Do you know they say there are 7,000 promises from God in the Bible? 7,000. And they don't work if I don't apply them. When I was thinking about this, I love the story in the scripture where Jesus, he'll speak in, in parables. And these are basically like metaphors that he uses to teach us. It's a natural thing that he tells us to teach us something spiritual. And he talks about these two houses. And he says, one is built on sand and one is built on the rock. And he's talking about our life. He's saying there's basically two ways to build your life. And he says, the person who hears what I say and puts it into practice is like a man who builds his house or his life on a rock. He builds it on the truth. He builds it on what I say. And another person hears what I say, but builds their life on sand. This is unstable and shifting. It's the trendy thing. One person, they build their life on truth, and the other person builds their life on what's popular and what's trending. One person builds their life on what's eternal, and another person builds their life on the latest book that they read. I'm telling you, God is teaching us something in this story. You see, both houses looked the same until the wind came. Both houses were fine. Like I was talking about before about being fragile, both houses were fine until a storm came. And then there was a difference between the two houses. You don't know what you built on until it gets windy. And I promise you, you better find uh, a way to build your life on the Word of God and, and what He says about your life. Because the same storm hit both houses. One survived and one didn't. You know what that means? That means the person whose house didn't survive, they can't blame God. They can't even blame the wind. You know, because they looked the same, but they were built different. Have you ever heard someone say that phrase? That I'm just built different? I want that to be what people say about my life. I'm built different. I'm built on something eternal, something that's not focused on my circumstances. No matter what happens, if I lose the job, if I lose the house, if I don't know what tomorrow holds, I'm built on something eternal and nothing can take it away. No wind or storm is going to blow my house and my life away because I'm built different. I'm built on something eternal. You see, both people in this parable, they heard the word. Both people had the same instructions. This is not a metaphor between a believer and a non-believer. This is a metaphor between two believers that applied the word differently. One person didn't do what God, what God had instructed them and built their life on this shifting sand. And one person built their life on a rock as they were instructed by God. So this person who built their life on sand cannot blame the wind. They can't play the victim. They can't blame God. They can't blame anybody else. 
Because this person whose house fell, it, it could be no one else's fault except theirs because they didn't apply the word of God to their life. I think this can set somebody free this morning that you don't have to live it as a victim anymore. You know, I love this quote from D.L. Moody. He said, I've never met a man who's caused me as great of trouble as I have caused myself. Can we grow some humility in the church and say, you know what, most of the problems I had that I blamed other people for, those were actually my fault. I should have had more discernment before I got in that relationship. It wasn't that person's fault. I was actually at fault for allowing myself to be there, and I'm not a victim. I'm going to take responsibility for my own actions. The enemy of this person was himself. The people who built these houses, the one who built it on the sand, it was his own fault because he didn't apply what he had heard into his house. See, God had given him instructions on how his house should be built, and he didn't listen. That's why I have to take every problem I have and attach it to the promises of God. I have to allow the Word of God to seep into my life and declare every promise of, he gives me over my life. Do you know prayer is not meant to be like a begging session where you bring everything you need to before God? And I think we do that, and, and it, it, but prayer is actually supposed to be declaring what he has already promised. And maybe we go to God and, and, we, and we say, God, I, I, I need you to save my family, which is a great desire, but I believe God says, I already gave you that promise. Why don't you start declaring Joshua 24, 15, which says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or Jeremiah 31, 16 and 17, which says, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. I already have a promise. I'm just going to start declaring it. I don't need to go to God as a beggar. I'm his child. I'm an heir of every promise in his word. Maybe you've gotten overwhelmed in your finances. I believe God's word for you has already gave you a promise for that, that I will supply all of, all of your needs according to my riches and glory. Maybe you're saying, God, close the door. Can I tell you, you already have a promise in Colossians 4, 3 that says, I'm the God who opens doors for you? Do you know that maybe you got overlooked at work and you're saying, God, I don't understand. And God is saying, I have a, I've already given you a promise according to Psalm 77. I'm the God of promotion. Maybe you've been going to God and saying, my marriage is going crazy. And God says, I've already given you a promise that what, no, what God has brought together, let no man separate. He's already given you a promise. Maybe um, this morning you have sickness in your body, and I believe we can go to God and say, you know what, God, I'm just to declare your promise in Exodus that says, I am the God that healeth thee. Thank you, Jesus, for your promises. I declare them over my life. I don't need to, to beg and, and act like I don't know you. I already have a relationship with you. I'm your child. I come boldly and say, God, thank you for your promise. I declare it over my life. I receive it over my life this morning. You need to know that God can do more with me praying than with me preaching. You see, in our culture, we value these stage gifts, and we act like there's something special about them. But I, but I never, I love this other quote by D.L. Moody. <laughs> he said, I'd rather be able to pray than to be a great preacher. Jesus Christ never taught his disciples how to preach, but how to pray. 
Prayer initiates everything, and we have plenty of great preaching churches in this city. We need a good praying church that says, you know what, every power that the Bible promises lies within prayer. I'm going to take it for my own, over my family, and I'm going to declare every promise over my city, because my God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we are not here to be entertained. We are not here to just build relationships. We come first and foremost to meet with God and say, I believe every promise in your word, and I claim it over my family in Jesus' name. I have brothers and sisters around me who will pray with me and claim the promises with me, but let's not get it twisted. We are here to pray and spend time with Jesus Christ because he's the only answer for my family, and I need you to pray with me for my family, and I will do the same for you because the power of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why I'm not willing to live in fear or intimidation. I'm not willing to live in insecurity. I claim the God over my life. I claim the word of God over my life, and I apply every promise to my life. I can have hope because all the hard work is not on me. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. I'm about to start singing. Um, you know, um, I'm not doing it. Uh, but, but I'm telling you, every promise in his word is not earned. It has just come and claimed because I have the blood of Jesus working in my life. And my life and my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That means every promise, every time I come into his presence, I can, I can ask him to fulfill every promise in his word. The sixth thing, we're almost there. The sixth thing is the altar of incense. As you see, it's right before the veil, right before you enter the Holy of Holies, the last piece of furniture we see there is the altar of incense. And this is a time in my prayer life where I just come and worship him and say, God, thank you for every promise in your word. And I lift my hands up and I make much of Jesus. Again, remember, nothing that we've talked about is about me. Everything we've talked about is made a lot of Jesus and very little of myself. And I think our prayer life can mirror this as we worship him. God, thank you that I was able to give you all my cares, all my burdens, and all my concerns. I lay them at your feet this morning as I come to the altar of incense to worship you. The last thing, I want to ask the worship team to come up and help me at this time. That we see as you enter the most holy place, or, or it's also known as the holy of holies. This was a sacred place in the tabernacle where, where only one person, the high priest, could enter one time a year to pray and, and make sacrifice for the sins of all of the people. And if the high priest was brought in with sin in his life that hadn't been repented of and dealt with with God, he would actually die in the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. And they actually did something interesting. They actually tied a rope to, with a bell on it to the, the high priest's ankle. So if they stopped hearing that bell, they would pull him out by the rope because they knew he'd passed away in the presence of God. It was a holy place. And this is a place where they would intercede for others. You know how special this would have been under the old covenant? To be able to be the one person, one time a year, who could enter into the presence of God. Can I ask you, how special is it to you? 
Because that's convicting to me to think, how much for granted do I take the fact that I can literally go into God's presence anytime I want? You know why? Because Jesus died. And when he died, that veil between the Holy of Holies and the holy place was torn. And Jesus said, come on in. I want to live with you. I, be, I want you to live in my presence. You don't have to leave. I'm, wherever you go, I'm going with you. And I'm going before you. The Holy Spirit in the temple of God is now in me. And come on, we got to stop taking it for granted. we got to start interceding for others. Because I think prayer, we sometimes we make it selfish, but I think prayer is the opposite of selfishness. I think prayer is humility and coming before God and making intercession for others. I can make intercession for myself, it's okay. But you know what? The people, the, the priests, they would go in there and they would pray for everyone else. This is a time in my prayer when I go and intercede for others, I pray for my family, I pray for my church, I pray for my city, I pray for those I work with. I take all these other people before God because you know what, there's some people that you work with that you probably don't like, but they might not have anybody else praying for them. And you see that ugliness in their, in their heart and you want to turn against them, I'm telling you, turn towards them in prayer and say, you know what God, I believe there's power in prayer and I'm not going to neglect it anymore. I want to use it for everything it's worth. And everything you created it for. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says this. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. See, we're supposed to intercede for others. And I've given you this morning a pattern of prayer, and it was give thanks, look to the cross, Offer every part of your life to God. Invite the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit into your life. Claim God's promises over your life. Worship his name and intercede for others. As a church, prayer should be our first response and not our last resort. You know why? Because I don't want to be known as a cool church. I don't want to be known as the hip church. I don't want to be known as the church where the pastor wears the skinny jeans. I want to be known as a church that prays. That's what I want to be known as, the church that will pray for you. You need prayer? Call encounter because those are some people that love Jesus and they will love you and they will serve you and they will pray for you. I want to be a church that's known for prayer because I believe that our biggest days are in front of us. I believe that our future is bigger than our present, and I believe that for you too. I believe God's future for you is bigger than your present, so it's time right now to consecrate yourself and prepare for where God wants to take you. Just like in the temple, it was all about consecration. Everything was holy, and it was about preparation for that day where the priest could go in and make intercession for people, but it started way before that, and they consecrated it, and nothing unholy would enter that place. Can I tell you, your next level is going to require a different level of holiness in your life than where you currently are, and it's time to consecrate yourself and say, my, God has bigger things in front of me, and there's some things that he's been speaking to me about that are not going into my next season with me, and right now, in Jesus' name, I break every addiction off you that wants to come into your next season that no longer has power over you in Jesus name I break over I break off every mental disorder that wants to continue to make you fall back into seasons of depression and I say in Jesus name be set free the joy of the Lord is your strength and I believe there's strength coming to you for your next season we consecrate ourselves right now Jesus expose anything in our hearts that's not of you Lord 
Right now, I'm just asking the Holy Spirit to speak to each of you and say, there's some areas of your life that need consecration. Maybe it's your words. Maybe it's things that you've been talking about behind people's backs. You've been gossiping. And maybe God is saying it's time to consecrate your mouth, that everything that comes out of your mouth is going to speak life and not death. Maybe it's some things in your heart, the brokenness, that he says it's time to heal that because you can't go into your next season until you consecrate yourself and deal with the things from your past. Father, we lay it all down before you today in Jesus. Jesus' name. I believe the prayer is the, the key to seeing the power of God in your life. And it all comes through relationship with Jesus. You know, I we're just beginning this um, football season and ending baseball season. And I've noticed something about fans is when, when their team does something really good, they get so passionate. And, and I hear them say this all the time. In fact, I was having a conversation with Keith up here playing the guitar last night and he's a Boston Red Sox fan I know gross forgive me Lord for uttering that name um, but he but he said we clinched did you hear we clinched which means we're in the playoffs we've done it and he kept saying we and I started to think to myself I bet you if Keith went to the stadium and got to the door right at the first playoff game and said I'm here to see my team we clinched and I want to see the game they'd say do you have a ticket and because he doesn't actually have a relationship with them, he would have no authority there. Now, if he was the coach and said, hey, I'm here to see my team, they'd say, come on in, coach. You know why? Because he has relationship. And there's so many of us, we've been trying to have authority and act and grow in our relationship with God, but we have not been developing a relationship. And your authority comes from intimacy with God. And you got to get to a place of prayer and intimacy, and your authority will grow. The power that you have when you pray for people will grow because you're growing in intimacy with God. It doesn't just happen. You don't just snap your fingers one day, and you're a, you're a mature Christian who prays for people and God uses your prayers. Intercessor, intercessor prayer warriors are people that over years have developed this time with Jesus where they can go to the throne and they pray for you and there's power in their prayers because of the relationship. Father, we pray in Jesus' name new authority is falling on this place and falling on believers in this place Jesus that comes in no other way by developing a relationship with you and so this morning we consecrate ourselves and say Jesus have every part of me God. Make this a holy place, Jesus. Make this a place where people are attentive, their ears are attentive to your word and want to hear from your spirit. We want to hear from you this morning in Jesus' name. Father, we just ask this morning, God, that as we pray and as we close this, I believe, Jesus, that we're, taking a, we're making a claim to every promise in your word and we're saying, Jesus, we want to know you more. Will you stand up to your feet with me this morning? You know, I believe every promise in God's word is true. And I can't think of any other better way to end this message and to say it's time to claim a promise over your life. If there's something, there's a promise in the Word of God for your healing. There's a promise in the Word of God for your family. There's a promise over your finances. Whatever it is that you want to claim, I want you to just raise up your hand right where you're sitting and say, God, I'm claiming every promise in your Word over my life. Father, in the name of Jesus, we declare there is power in the Word of God, and we are people of the Word, Lord. We are children of, of you, Jesus. And we just ask this morning, God, that every promise in your Word, we pray there's a release of miracles, God. We pray there's a release of 
breakthrough, healings in this place in Jesus' name, God, because we're claiming every promise. We're not coming to you begging. We're saying, God, we're reaching up our hand, and that's all we can do. Jesus, you're going to do all the heavy lifting. In Jesus' name, we pray breakthrough in every life with their hand raised right now. Come on, just start to pray. Just start to worship him and thank him for who he is. He's already paid the price for your miracle, for the promises in his word on the cross. Let's worship him for a couple minutes.